Welcome to Matter of Fact from Chicago, the latest stop on our listening tour, where our special correspondent learned the forgotten history of the environmental justice movement and about the woman who made it all happen. This is one of the countless times Hazel, Cheryl, and PCR went on the news to advocate for their work and to make it understandable to a wider audience. And as a way to break it down, Hazel came up with the perfect term. The toxic donut. I'm used to calling this area a toxic donut. We're sitting in the center of it, and we are surrounded by all types of pollution. Welcome to episode three. From the center of the donut. Hazel was the, the one who owned that term, just the same as the word thriller goes with Michael Jackson. It's a... Uh, You say thriller, I immediately think of Michael Jackson. So therefore, it's his term. It was a very good term for focusing on Old Guild Gardens. Yeah, and we agree with Bob Ginsburg. The term is super apt. On the PCR website, there's actually a map of the area with Old Guild Gardens sitting right in the middle. And then it shows these concentric circles, no more than a couple miles in diameter. So sorry for all you visual learners out there. It's a podcast. What can we do? Audio format. If you look at this graphic, these concentric circles actually look like the most disgusting donut you could ever imagine. Within those circles sits an almost absurd concentration of industry causing environmental devastation. Cheryl breaks down the harmful ingredients in that toxic donut. She did our personal research and she was able to find out that we have 50 documented landfills in our area. We have 250 leaking underground storage tanks still leaking today. We have over 300-something hazardous operations, whether it's processing chemicals, storing chemicals, burning chemicals, and then you have chemical waste management who operate a PCB incinerator. And the reason why she learned about it because she called the Environmental Action Organization that was located in Washington, D.C., And it was very surprised to hear a widow of seven children living in public housing and Black talking about the environment, air quality issues, land issues, water issues for this area. When we say Hazel asks questions, we don't just mean she asks them passively. Hazel demanded answers. And even having the answer wasn't enough. Once she started to get answers, she started asking new questions. How do we address the effects of this toxic donut? Who's responsible? And what could she and the people around her do from the center of that donut to try to address, remediate, and repair the harm? Those questions, so central to environmental justice around the world, emerged for Hazel as she started to try to understand the connections between the seemingly disparate harms that surrounded her community. Because their work was grounded in the real experiences of community members. They were able to draw all these different pieces, like the manor homes not getting the proper like water and sewer lines, all the way to asbestos in some of the buildings, all the way to, oop, here's toxic incineration. And oh, over here, we have dumping. Many EJ struggles are really focused on one facility or one point of pollution. And what I think is remarkable about Hazel's work is if you if you even look at like the really early stuff, There's this constellation of things that are happening to community members and Hazel and the folks organizing with Hazel 
were like, no, we're fighting about all this. Like, none of this is acceptable. What Juliana Pino just said is such a big part of what makes Hazel's work so important. It's also part of what makes telling the story kind of hard. Usually, when people are telling stories about environmental justice, they're talking about one fight, one year, one campaign, one set of players, one side of harm. But Hazel's legacy is so much bigger than that. And that is such a valuable lesson that we can all learn from Hazel. The importance of connecting the dots. Even when the connections are not clear, or when there are forces telling you that those connections do not exist. Hazel embodied a commitment to understanding the whole of our environment. In order to understand the whole, Hazel had to understand each of the parts. And so that's what we're going to do on this episode. We're going to go through a bunch of the different campaigns, struggles, fights that PCR led and participated in, many of which Juliana just mentioned, going all the way back to the beginning of their organizing work. Cheryl kind of serves as our guide on this one, breaking down each struggle and its importance to the work overall. Let's get started with Marilyn Manor. It started when we had a community meeting at the Catholic gym and a couple of the residents from Maryland Manor came to that meeting and they explained to my mother that, you know, they were still drinking well water. And she was like surprised to even hear that within the city of Chicago, people were still drinking well water instead of filter water from the city. Robert Shaw was the alderman at that particular time. And she started talking to him, telling him about their story and the fact that they was paying taxes on a water and a sewer line that they never had for 25 years. And she was able to get the ears of uh, Harold Washington at that time. And he was stunned to know, just like she was stunned to learn So he got in contact with the state to get them to appropriate funding to be able to get the installation of a water system and a sewer line over there to Maryland Manors. That was our very first environmental victory. They well water was highly contaminated. So the two takeaways that I heard in there were one, Hazel already connecting to folks who are living outside the gardens. You know, Maryland Manor is nearby, but it's not technically within the same development. And then also this like taxation without, forget about representation, without water access, people were paying into the infrastructure of the city without getting any of the benefits from it. It took going all the way to the mayor, who himself had no idea that this was happening within his own city, to make anything happen. Now, any Chicago history buff, or honestly, just anyone from Chicago, knows that this mayor is not like all other mayors. This is a very particular mayor we're talking about. I don't support the rights of people because I'm a politician. I support the rights of people because it's deep within me, a natural part of my own development. I'm the results of 400 some odd years of struggle. That when people cry for help, whether Chinese coolies or South African Bantu or serfs in Russia, or South African held in bondage, or gay and lesbians pushed around, that I'll be there and defending them and supporting them. That's just a big deal. That's what the fight is all about. And that's what we're all about. I'm going to be your mayor for the next 20 years. 
Harold Washington's legacy looms so large over our city and country as one of the most historical political figures to ever come into office. And we learned that Hazel actually supported the organization of the campaign that got him into office. Well, my mother was actually a volunteer to help with the campaigning of Congressman Harold Washington to get him elected as the mayor of the city of Chicago. Now, that's actually not that surprising based on who Harold was and how he became the mayor. Harold went up against an explicitly racist and in many ways corrupt, infamous political machine here in Chicago with a broad-based coalition rooted in grassroots organizing and building off the legacies of civil rights and other social movements of the 60s and 70s. Him and Hazel were both kind of peers in that way, wouldn't you think? Yeah, they both really came of consciousness in this transformative time where what does it mean to be Black? What does power mean? How do people respond to and or accept or stop accepting oppressive systems? So it really makes sense to see them emerge or kind of ascend into their work in the same time. Kind of simultaneously. Yeah. And Harold was definitely significant in their next big fight. One of my favorites, because that's the kind of nerd I am, is the ban on landfills. That's huge. You know, by itself, that that prevented so much harm. My mom was able to demonstrate that there was 50 documented landfills in that area. Unlike a lot of the environmental hazards we listed previously that existed before the gardens, the process of opening and dumping into landfills continued after the gardens were constructed and after people and families and children had moved in. And not just in the gardens. Longtime EJ activist Bob Ginsburg shares the story of an unlikely resident in the middle of one of these landfills. CID, the big landfill down there was only opened in the late 60s. And back then, you still had one person who had a house in the middle of CID who refused to sell. So you could actually drive into the middle of the landfill to get this guy's house. I think he eventually sold. There's something to be said for that. Even if you know you're going to lose eventually, you're going to hold out as long as possible. She felt that we bear the burden of enough landfills in our area and the need to be a way to stop any new development or expansion of landfills. So it was a coalition of organizations that worked together. We had the Citizens for a Better Environment, the Southeast Environmental Task Force. There was a group in Jeffrey Manor. I can't remember what that name was. It was Center for Neighborhood Technology. It was the City of Chicago Waste Disposal Coalition. They all crafted an ordinance to be submitted to the Chicago to put this moratorium on any expansion or development of landfills on the southeast side of Chicago. And so this chapter of Hazel's story teaches us a very important organizing lesson about how to build, engage, and contest power. It's an age-old tactic, very straightforward, direct action, and civil disobedience. In fact, I went to jail. Me and Greenpeace groups, it was 17 of us, we, we chained ourselves, and we, didn't, uh, we stopped 57 trucks that day from coming in. But after all the media and everybody left, then waste management had us arrested for trespassing. This lesson is important, because in our representative government, unfortunately, every person or every group can't just write an ordinance and it enter the formal proceedings of our different legislative houses. Yeah, if I just write an ordinance, city council doesn't have to like talk about it the next day. <laughs> and so... In this direct action of waste management, we learn its importance as it allowed them, one, to name harm and oppose the institution perpetuating it, but also to raise awareness and attention for the issue 
and to put pressure on those who do have the power to pass legislation. Ultimately, a moratorium on new landfills, not just on the southeast side, but in Chicago overall, was passed by Harold Washington. This was a landmark policy, not just because of what it meant for landfills, but because it was an example of the city government of Chicago acknowledging, responding to, and setting policy around the needs of a grassroots environmental justice group. That's why, as Juliana said a couple minutes ago, this fight was so important. Under the Daly administration, he rescinded that ordinance, but because of community pressure from many of the environmental groups in the city of Chicago, and not just grassroots, but the environmental community in Chicago, was able to get that moratorium reinstituted. And to my understanding, this ordinance still is in effect today, where there's no landfill can be built in the city of Chicago or expanded. This effort actually exposes to us the larger pattern of environmental racism and teaches us what environmental justice is. Tell me more, Dame. So across the country, whether it's efforts in Texas or North Carolina or New York, you'll see that the placement of landfills and waste disposal facilities were intentionally placed in Black, Brown, immigrant, and working class communities. This did not happen accidentally. For many people, when we dispose of waste, it becomes invisible. But those hazards don't disappear. They often are dumped near or in the communities of the peoples whose struggles are also invisibilized. This type of zoning shows us how we think about disposability both for people and for material goods. Because of the work of Hazel and people like her, where those materials were disposed of had to shift. Hazel said, My community is not at the margin. My community is in the center, the center of this toxic donut, and our lives are not to be thrown away. But the solution to that specific landfill, if, as an economy, we don't change our processes, just shifts where the garbage ends up. Here's Olga Bautista from the Southeast Side, who named this in a way that really changed our thinking. My friend Elise Zalachowski, you know, talks about people just throw things away, like she says. But where is a way? A way is in third world countries that take waste like uh, batteries and electronic wastes. And um, it's just a way for us, right? It's throwing it away. But for a lot of people, it's their neighborhoods. It's where black and brown people live almost always, or poor people. That concept of a way is so important when we think about coalition. If Hazel was only focusing on Alco Gardens, the answer would be, just put it in another part of the city. But because what was needed to get the moratorium passed was to work with people all over the city, the campaign was able to fundamentally transform how Chicago worked as a whole. And so something else we can pull from this landfill moratorium is the tension and oftentimes conflict between the needs of community and the demands of capital. Right. If you're going to have a steel plant or a processing plant, they're going to have to put their byproducts somewhere. So we will continue to unpack this tension as we move through this story of the way in which we passively and sometimes actively support industry and its role in our society. But the harm that Hazel was experiencing didn't only come from private industry. The very materials used to build the gardens had the potential to be just as damaging to her family as what was being dumped in the landfill across the street. We had a lot of peeling pain in Algale. And from our training that we received from 
the University of Illinois Primary Health Initiative or something like that, discovering that lead-based paint and particularly peeling paint and dust was harmful to kids. And we had a lot of kids in our community that tested positive. So originally, it used to be a kid level had to be at 100 before you could get the city of Chicago to respond. Then it went down to 50. And we know that lead has no purpose in our body and our body should be having it. And we knew how detrimental at 50 was. That was a group that PCR was a member of. It's called the Lead Elimination Action Drive. So we advocated for lead levels in the city of Chicago to be reduced down to 20. At that particular time, we had the Chicago Legal Clinic who was representing us, and he wrote a lot of lead reforms for the city of Chicago Housing Authority to initiate, because if they did initiate it, then we was going to sue. So CHA came up with a recommendation to eradicate lead out of public housing. So they created a report cards that shows where all the risk factors were, from window sills to doors to peeling paint. And it also gave recommendations on how to protect your family and who to call in case you suspect your child is lead poisoned. Then we learned that most of our hot water pipes that was exposed in our unit was wrapped in a casing like looked like like a cast that was a bestos. So we started advocating to CHA again that you must remove this bestos because once it's exposed, it's airborne. So what we was able to do with CHA is to work with them. They relocated families into different units that were safe while they did the abatement in the unit. And once the tests come back clear, our families will move back into those units. Just from my my understanding, you just said that the water was running through lead pipes wrapped in asbestos. The heating pipes that was exposed in the ceiling was wrapped in asbestos. But they were lead pipes that were wrapped in asbestos. Of course they was lead pipes. Yes. Kyra Woods, who's part of the creative cabinet for the project and also works for the city of Chicago, speaks to the impact of that lead and asbestos abatement work. You know, as a commonly used item and I guess material rather for buildings, it may have been phased out at some point and, and that was already kind of happening. But to say, no, this is a known carcinogen and harmful to our health. You've let it stay here. Knowing that you built this place with it, that's foul. And and the her ability to challenge that, get those things removed across the entire community, really important. Um, and I, I know catalyze that work as we think about the work nationally for health of public housing as well, um, and understanding that that still needs to be quality housing, um, even if it is more affordable. Lead isn't only a problem of the past, and definitely isn't only a problem in public housing, though of course it is still present for many of those communities. The Guardian reported Chicago has an estimated 80% of homes with water connections made of lead more than any other city in the nation. The awareness of that reality matched with a lack of political will to address it, is a prime example of how environmental racism shows up in our world and destroys our communities. It's come to the forefront of local politics in some ways. It was one of the central pieces of Lori Lightfoot's campaign in 2019, and, somewhat unsurprisingly, it didn't all get fixed. In fact, as of the end of 2022, the city had only switched out 280 
of an estimated 390,000 lead lines that provide water to Chicagoans. So, if you're in Chicago, make sure you call 311, get a lead testing kit, and if you're based somewhere else, look for the resources that are available where you are to make sure that the water you're taking in is as safe as possible. Lead and asbestos were the two biggest hazards within the actual construction of the gardens, but they weren't the only things Hazel had to fight to get removed from her house in order to make it safer. She fought against fiberglass that was used in my attics because if you get exposed to his light, you try to dig those fibers out your skin. And it was unfortunately, I was the one that my brothers and them used to put in the attics to get our bites and stuff down. And I used to come out itching for days. So when she fought to get that removed, I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when she worked with Barack Obama. All right, so we got a name drop there. Yeah, Barack Obama, you might've heard of him. <laughs> We're gonna get a little bit deeper into the Obama story later, but for now, this is how he first showed up in the gardens and the southeast side. We had um, Our Lady of the Gardens Catholic Church. The Catholic priests organized an organization called DCP, Development Community Project. And he was hired to work with them. He came out into the community and wanted to do a community meeting with the leaders in the community. But at that particular time, the leaders was not receptive. When I say the other leadership, that's the leadership of the residential council that we have out here that are duly elected. People just couldn't walk in the gardens and say, I'm going to do anything without having the permission from the leadership in the community. So it was one of those incidents that that he came out and he was ridiculed by that leadership that they didn't want him out here. From the understanding of my mom, she said she stood up because she was so amazed to see, I think he was like 22 years old, a black man that was standing up to talk about issues in our community at that particular time. From there, they developed a relationship to start talking about the environmental conditions in the community. We didn't have that many men. And to see him, you know, real young man that come out to work with, with a bunch of women, I thought that was awesome. When President Obama says he began his political career as a community organizer, this is what he's talking about. And when I get deeper into that story, it gets a little messy, y'all. A lot's been written about that mess, and we will give it the time that it deserves. But the messes that PCR was forced to clean up were way more important than the interpersonal conflict that emerged a couple decades later. So we're going to keep going through the organizing struggles that Hazel, Cheryl, and PCR led, but let's just take a moment. I want to check in with you, the listener. For me, for Daniel, hearing this story, telling this story, has a weight. Yeah, the air is heavy in the studio. And we don't want to rush past the real impact of the people most directly harmed, but also the impact of hearing and learning about the dangers and hazards in our environment. So I encourage you just to take a deep breath in. Ground yourself wherever you are. Release some of the tension if you find it in your body. And breathe in through your nose. And calmly release. So we thank you for taking that breath with us and grounding. We want to be intentional as we continue through the story, because now we're going to learn about one of the most grueling fights that Hazel Sherl and PCR led in response to one of the most significant acts of environmental racism documented on our planet. The dumping of PCBs in the middle of all Gale Gardens. 
I started to hear more about the impact of the environment uh, from my sister when she started talking about the lawsuit that everybody was talking about and this Levy money that some of the residents who had been exposed to toxins in the environment and had high rates of cancer, high rates of asthma, because of that exposure, they were going to get paid. So the idea of this Levy money that Joy West is referring to comes from the belief within the community that there was this imminent cash payout settlement on the horizon in response to the realization that PCBs were dumped in the community. Before we get into that lawsuit and the complications of it, we got to break down what a PCB even is and how it became a problem in the gardens. According to a fact sheet from environmental group The Clearwater, PCBs, or polychlorinated biphenyls, are a group of 209 different chemicals which share a common structure. According to the EPA, PCBs are a probable human carcinogen, reasonably likely to cause cancer in humans. Studies of PCBs in humans have found increased rates of melanomas, liver cancer, gallbladder cancer, biliary tract cancer, gastrointestinal tract cancer, and brain cancer, and may be linked to breast cancer. In addition to cancer, people exposed directly to high levels of PCBs, either through the skin, by consumption, or in the air, have experienced irritation of the nose and lungs, skin irritation such as severe acne, and rashes, as well as eye problems. PCBs can also cause developmental effects. People exposed to PCBs before or during pregnancy can give birth to children with significant neurological and motor control problems, including lowered IQ and poor short-term memory. Exposed children are also found to have decreased birth weight and head size. PCBs can also disrupt hormone function. It can affect menstrual cycles and sperm counts, while also impacting people's immune systems and affecting their thyroids. In short, PCBs can cause significant damage to pretty much every system in the human body. So how did the PCBs get there? Well, what had happened was, so the Chicago Housing Authority stored discarded electric transformers in a yard in the gardens from the mid-1970s until 1984. What on earth is a transformer? So this reminds me of that scene in The Departed. I don't know if y'all saw the movie, but it's when they do like the big sting operation about the microprocessors. Mm. And Martin Sheen's character is like, microprocessors. Mm-hmm. We all heard of them. No one knows what they are. <laughs> but in 20 odd years, we'll be at war with China over them. <laughs> excellent, excellent, terrible Boston accent. Really great work, Dave. So yeah, electric transformers are kind of like that. We see them. We may have heard of them, but many of us don't know what they are. Just basic definition, a transformer is a passive component that transfers electric energy from one electrical circuit to another circuit. So basically, it's those boxes you see on the poles that connect the power lines. CHA had a whole bunch of these transformers that were no longer in use. But here's the kick. They contain copper components, and copper is very valuable for resale. As CHA employees took copper from the transformers, they then dumped the PCB-filled oil from the transformers into the soil around them. It was this process of breaking down these transformers for the materials for resale that released the PCBs into the environment in the gardens. It's important to note that the CHA did make multiple attempts to clean the site between 1984 and the mid-90s, but those efforts were incomplete. By the time they were dumping and continued to dump in there, they already knew the impact of PCBs on human health. That's Dr. Sylvia Hood-Washington. Even knowing that, they allowed them to dump that waste inside of a a community, around schools. I mean, it's horrifying. It started in a little 
shed. Then it spread it all the way across the street where they hit two daycares. They went south, but they didn't go west or north to see because it's all under the ground of that of that complex where our commercial strip, better known as up top, is located. It's all under there. They didn't go under there. They didn't raise no buildings. Our goals was we wanted the PCB cleaned up. So there was no detection of PCBs. But that didn't happen. So are there still PCBs now? Is that what you're saying? I would say that it is. For an example, they was only going to go six feet into the soil for remediation. We said, no, you need to go farther than that. You need to go where there's no detection. And we organized around and pressured them. They ran them happened to go 20 feet into the soil and they was hitting the bedrock. Once they hit the bedrocks, it's in the waterways. So the only thing they could do was gravel it in, sealed it up with some cement, and put new soil and grass. What about the expansion of it? And I used to make the simple argument that this PCB grew up with me. Am I'm the same size when I was born? <laughs> no. I grew and expanded. So don't you think this chemical expanded? And this is why you have to expand to where there's no detection of it. If we can go back and do soil sample in that area right now today, it would test hot for PCB contaminants. I want everybody to be clear that PCB cleanup and that lawsuit associated with it, we lost because we wasn't able to, what the attorney was not able to connect the health issues with the type of health issues was associated with polychlorinated biphenyls. We know it causes cancer, but he didn't make that connection good enough where we really lost that in court. And we lost it because we weren't able to connect health issue to it. But because PCB is a highly regulated chemical compound and it required, once it has been identified in the community, there's our procedures that the owner must do. CHA failed to do that grossly for decades. That's when the judge awarded a settlement to residents in the form of rent credit. So the money that you won still went back to CHA. And it's just difficult to really tell someone who's probably having rent problem not to take this offer. So when the first person took the offer, that opened the slew of doors for them to say that this is the way that people going to accept this settlement. It was said that we, PCR, sold the community out. It was told that my mother received a million dollars. It was told that we received a lot of money, which comes to be unfound, untrue. And when you talk about money in the poor community, that's a divisive strategy at itself. When you have elected bodies to represent the community, either go against its own community residents and organization on the behalf of the establishment who caused the contamination to be exist in my community, that's a problem within itself. I'm talking about the local advisory council. They fought against us. It brought us to the conclusion after going through that experience that 
litigation for a class action lawsuit, we would never be involved with. But we will be involved in lawsuits that affect change in the community. Not so much putting money in people's pockets because people perception, negative perception that because you brought this lawsuit to the community that you're entitled to a whole lot of money, which is not true. And that wasn't even our arterial motive anyway, because our arterial motive was to get this stuff cleaned and out of our community. That's what we wanted. There was a secret meeting, a teleconference at that time, it was, called, it was on the phone, that the government would give us anything we want if we get off the soil contamination in our gale. Who plays on the soil in our, in our community all the time? Our babies. And we said no. So even if there was a million dollars, but the PCBs were still there, it still would have been a loss. You know, at loss, right? We still at loss. This also just sounds painful and heavy, and it sounds like a lot of manipulation at play. So, if you could just reflect on how that impacted you, how that impacted your mother at the time, and how that impacted community members and their relationship with each other, I can imagine there would be a lot of conflict or a lot of confusion navigating through all these players. Oh, that's such an understatement. The abuse that I seen my mother had to go through getting this case litigated. A couple of times I have seen my mother cry, you know. I was able to have any witness the abuse that she went through from elected officials and other community leaders. and But she stuck to her ground. Many times, you know, she had me on her side. She just didn't know I was ready to box. <laughs> you don't talk, you don't disrespect my you, know, you, you don't my disrespect mama. my mama, you know. And she used, to, she used to grab my hand, like, be you okay, be okay. I was like, no, this ain't okay, you know. But I learned from her. You know, she didn't let that even bother because she says she know the truth of what she does. She would tell you she don't give a F about what other folks think about her. You know, she just care about what impact that these things are doing to our community. So let's just unpack some of what Cheryl walked us through. We came into this project and into that specific conversation with Cheryl, thinking about the efforts of PCB cleanups as this great win, Mm -hmm. right? As one of the major victories of PCR. Yeah, it's like on their website listed as one of the great accomplishments, which there are aspects that are incredibly impressive that they managed to get some sort of restitution or response. And us knowing about it at all. Right. Right. Because there was no investment to even paying attention in the first place. Right. But for us, it was actually really impactful for her to name this as a loss from a very vulnerable place. Yeah, I mean, I think Cheryl has this incredible humility around understanding what this fight led to and and how the results were perceived by many people in the gardens. You know, we heard from Joy that her sister was talking about this Levy money coming. And for people who are living in precarious economic conditions, that Levy money could take on all kinds of meetings. What is this going to make possible? And so from there, the conclusion that Cheryl and PCR came to of how they will approach institutions and institutional resources is a really valuable but complex lesson of the role of money, of settlements, of cash payments in justice work, because it lives in this conundrum. The people who are most likely to be harmed by institutional systems are those with the least resources, but the conditional access to those resources is intended to demobilize the necessary resistance work and for those in power to escape accountability. And that's something I've seen play out in different realms. So that's something that 
families who've lost loved ones to police violence wrestle with deeply, and there's not a consensus on how to approach it. But we have to question the way money and cash payouts can be used as a manipulative tactic. That being said, they didn't even get any cash in this. Yo. That's the other side of it. So people, as we, <laughs> as we <laughs> tell people about this story working on this project, folks always ask, like, well, did they get anything? What, you know, was there any repair? Was there any settlement? The fact that the CHA, the Chicago Housing mm-hmm. Authority, that caused the problem, that dumped the PCBs in the first place, got the money. <laughs> Is that, did, did y'all hear that? The, the money went to rent payments directly to CHA. So the people did not get a check, did not have autonomy, could not choose to spend it on groceries, on education, on health care costs. It all went back to the harmful institution. Yeah, that's wild. A credit, no more than $1,000, paid back to CHA for rent. Joy West puts it best. It seems to me a small price to pay for all that was um, a part of the exposure to the toxins in the environment. In many ways, that is a tragedy. And when you understand the human cost, it kind of challenges this idea of campaign wins and losses. Like that feels almost too small or limiting as a way to understand the impact of Hazel's work. You're right. I get bothered a lot of times by the win-loss binary. This isn't a war simulation. This isn't a game. This isn't a season. There's no score of win-loss records. Hayes was not fighting some rival team. She was working for her people. She was working for answers. Here's Creative Cabinet member Juliana Pino from El Vejo. I love me a dogged woman, like a woman who puts up with nobody's problematic stuff and who's going to push the way in which they not only identified what was going down, but also they made connections and lateral links that in the EJ movement were also rare. So they they did like worker organizing, right? They, they started thinking about um, retraining. They started thinking about remediation. They started thinking about all these different aspects all at the same time. So it's also Hazel was dogged and needed to know why, but the woman was brilliant. And from that brilliance, there's so much we can learn. But in order to do so, we have to see the circle that Hazel saw. She was able to see each of these toxic chemicals, each of these corporations, each of these decisions that led to harm as components of a larger whole. These are the pieces that create the donut. And with that understanding, she was better equipped to address all of it. Here she is at the 1991 People of Color Environmental Justice convening in D.C., talking about what this cumulative understanding makes possible and how people and organizations in power don't approach it that way. Our area has been the dumping ground for 163 years. When I went to Illinois EPA, they didn't have no intention for me to be in there, but I think that was an accident for them, them to put my name on the list. They was concerned about 201 chemicals that's being emitted in the air. The majority of these chemicals was causing cancer. It was causing some time a nerve uh, uh, disorder. Now just think about it. All the concern is about what one chemical could do. But if they would put all these chemicals together and do a study, imagine they'll know what's going on but they don't want to do that. All they do is just give, give tests of one chemical at a time. But we are demanding for them to do 
a mixture of chemistry. Even if they just mix up 10 of them, it's bad enough, let's know 201. What Hazel is describing is a framework known as cumulative impact. And Kyra Woods breaks it down for us. There are scientific limits placed on the quantity of a particular material or ingredient, right, that can be allowed in something. But what is frequently measured is that item or that chemical in isolation. And what becomes difficult is the burden of proof that is required with cumulative impacts. And that is where things get dizzying and deadly. It's not just about asbestos. It's not just about lead in the water. It is not just about the singular thing that the EPA threshold says is allowable, um, but it is the fact that on mass, you are accumulating so many of these burdens that you actually make it impossible sometimes for the impacted community to actually place blame appropriately. Bob Ginsburg. Keep in mind, back in the 80s, we're still trying to figure out how to evaluate, measure cancer. Ten years before, the law was something called the Delaney Amendment, which came after about saccharin. It was an artificial sweetener, and it was caused for good cancer. And Delaney Amendment said no level of a known carcinogen is acceptable. And of course, industry said, well, we now can measure really low amounts. What is the real risk? The business will want to have a number. And they get below that, they have legal protection. So when we looked at cancer levels, it was obvious people were exposed, but all this, every single study showed there was, wasn't a really big increase in cancer because the, the scientific tools weren't there. Uh, they were exposed to carcinogens, lots of them, but each one would, may not have been at the right level. There were lots of metals in the air, but all below the, the limits. And so trying to see if you were exposed to 10 different metals that are toxic at some level, but you're not meeting that level. The science, the way of testing and evaluating says we can't evaluate that. By the late 80s, EPA set up a Southeast Chicago project out of the regional office. And that was disbanded a few years later because they said there's a greater risk for people living north and close to the expressway than all the people living next to the landfills and the air pollution and everything else in the southeast side because we can measure that. It's bad science. Let me just say that. It's bad science. And so, you know, being trained here at Cook County Hospital in Chicago, I spent hours and hours with workers, auto workers, steel workers. And that's one of the things that they made clear. And the environmental justice movement really stands as part of and on top of that struggle among organized labor to try to protect their workers. And so I think some of this goes right back into how we think about Western science. And then on top of that, we set up a regulatory system that's designed to protect corporate profits. So you get into this notion, you have to show that this company is causing harm. This goes back through American history. You know, in a typical industrial plant, you might have 100,000 different chemicals. It'd take 100 years to figure out which one of them, in in all likelihood, it's more than one. And it's probably some new chemicals that they get made when they come together. When you have a scientific problem, the question is, what are you trying to do with the scientific question you're answering? And what are you going to use to get to the answer? If you center human beings 
on your scientific endeavors. And I'll just say as a physician, that's got to be critical. If you're not centering living beings, human beings and other living creatures as a center for why you're asking the question and what harms you're trying to document, then you start off in a bad position. If, if you center efficiency and you center profitability. So right away, you're asking the wrong kind of question and you're going to get an answer that doesn't help people or plants or fish or animals with important biological questions. Um, So once you center human health, then you have to be respectful of what we know and what we don't know. There's so many things we don't know about the intricacies of human health. But when you have people having cancer or congestive heart failure or kidney failure or skin problems, these are broad signs and symptoms that something is going wrong. Again, you don't have to have the exact pathway that a disease is being caused. You can do something to stop the harm, to stop the exposure and see if, in fact, that has an impact on the health outcomes you're trying to measure. So you don't have to have a big debate about where the cancer-causing chemicals are. We know around Archgale Gardens, there are literally hundreds of cancer-causing material. It's not like we didn't have a suspect, but you don't have to prove which out of the hundred of industrial toxic waste that existed out there was causing a specific set of cancers in people. Hazel is a perfect example of a community leader that understood this and understood that the hoops we have to jump through with the EPA and this kind of stuff, this this legalistic framework that you have to somehow show that chemicals are guilty, doesn't make any sense. It it, it is completely against what human beings ought to be concerned with. So Dr. Murray names it as bad science, but it's also bad law. And what she says is that that legal structure, just like the science, is rooted in corporations avoiding responsibility. So with the PCBs, for example, in order for PCR to, quote, win the lawsuit, they had to prove that it was PCBs specifically causing those health effects. And part of what made that not possible was not just because they didn't have the people or the studies. It was because out of the hundreds of cancer-causing chemicals in their air, land, and water, they couldn't pinpoint specifically that it was only the PCBs causing that harm. To simplify, the institutional defense wasn't that it's not that bad out there. Their position was, it is so bad, there are so many harms, that it is not our responsibility and we are not accountable. And like Dr. Murray says, that might be all well and true, but there are things we can do if we see the effects to try to mitigate that harm, even without having to name which chemical is guilty. This pattern of compounding is not something foreign to the corporate or capitalist space. This is the primary principle of how to approach profit, to compound it upon itself for growth to stack on top of growth. And in root of that compounding profit, harm, waste, hazards, violence, oppression is compounded upon the most vulnerable communities like Allgale Gardens. But then there's this dissonance when the impact is realized and surfaced in people's day-to-day lives. Now when we see sick children and people struggling with preventable disability, those same people, the corporate or capitalist space, disconnect the dots. And we see at this bad science and this bad law that is geared towards protecting profit and powerful institutions demand that Hazel discount the impact on people's lives that she and her community know to be true. And how does she know this to be true? When the institutions we look to to validate information said it was impossible to know. Because for Tanisha Harris, she had a different method. I think she created her own methodology for how to inquire. I think she laid the framework for how to contact your local officials, uh, whether that be government agencies or not. She left the framework for how to organize and build a sense of community and collaboration. 
she left a framework for how to pester someone (laughs) until they give you answers. And so I think you could easily follow the steps that she took to get some of the answers. And that's not only true for individuals or community groups. The same institutions that Hazel spent her life struggling to get accountability from, and who claimed that a cumulative impact approach wasn't valid, like the city government of Chicago and the EPA, were also taking notes. And now, a generation later, are starting to bring an understanding of cumulative impact to the work they're doing today. Here's Deborah Shore from the EPA. Right now, our staff at Region 5 is working collaboratively with the City of Chicago Department of Health, with the state of Illinois EPA, to develop an approach as to how these cumulative impact health assessments could be conducted and uh, what role people in communities can play. I think it's going to be a year-long process that the city of Chicago is engaged in to conduct a citywide impact assessment, but that will help individual neighborhoods uh, know and be able to compare themselves. It's in process now, but we hope we'll be able to establish something that's durable and that will last. Hazel is a representative, a symbol, an example of lots of Black women and men throughout our history that have looked at the world, made a rational diagnosis, and tried to make corrections to to cure the problem. And that doesn't mean that you have to be unique. That just means that you have to be observant. You have to ask questions. You have to not be afraid to go where you are told you can't go. When I had a chance to talk and work with with Hazel, I mean, I had an MD by the time I met her and specialized training, but she was she was clearly more knowledgeable about problems in art guild than I was, for example. And she wasn't afraid. She wasn't intimidated by these uh, big shots coming from EPA or anywhere else with all their degrees and technical jargon because she saw through that and asked the appropriate questions. That courage, the understanding that there's a difference between your technical knowledge and quote unquote expertise on chemicals and her technical knowledge and expertise on the people that lived in her community, on what made people healthy. I mean, she was a mother. I think she had five kids. What what you needed to have healthy kids, what you needed to have a healthy community. She was clear about that. And it was clear that what was going on around the toxic donut was interfering with that process. Dr. Murray offers us this great nuance of, yes, Hazel is a remarkable historical figure, but at the same time, she does not stand alone. Looking at this accumulation of Hazel's work over decades, we know that in other cities, other states, other contexts, there were other people asking similar questions, demanding similar answers. And the compounding growth of the environmental justice movement is the cumulative impact of all of this work. What do we take from her work? For Tanisha Harris, it's how Hazel asked those questions. I think Hazel Johnson saw a problem in her community and wanted an answer. And she talked to everyone she could to find that answer. I think that is the deepest form of curiosity that everyone is capable of. You don't need to know the scientific method. You don't need a degree or formal education. You just need to have a problem identified and talk to as many people as you want to until you get your answers. I think the way she went about it is a great framework 
perhaps someone else stepping into this type of space or any type of inquiry could go about it. There are tactics and strategies, but what started off was very simple. She identified a problem. She wanted an answer. She talked to people to get answers. And I think if there's nothing else people take from this documentary, it's nurturing that sense of curiosity and not stopping until you get an answer. For me, the lesson is how do we apply this approach of cumulative impact beyond just environmental biohazards to all of the factors that play a role in human health and relationships? So similarly, how environmental justice organizers and activists are encouraged to separate the effect of PCB and lead and asbestos as different issues. We're expected to separate, to to disconnect, to unravel redlining from school closures, from mass incarceration to gendered and sexual violence. But this liberatory history teaches us that we can get closer to growing new possibilities once we see those overlaps. And the way to connect those dots is to demand that people's expertise that comes from their lived experiences be seen as the most important data of all. That same demand is echoed by Olga Bautista and so many other people who work in Hazel's legacy today. I sometimes struggle to figure out like what is the path forward, but I could tell you just like Hazel could that what we have right now is not working. And I will tell whoever I need to tell, like, I didn't go to college. I went for a couple of semesters. I didn't finish. I'm not an expert in urban planning. I'm not an ex-scientist. I don't know dangerous levels of lead or particulate matter in the air. But I am an expert in my own lived experience. I'm an expert in what is around my family and my community when I'm outside playing with my kids. And I could tell you all day about that. I could tell you how it smells like something died sometimes outside. I can tell you that my chest gets tight and my bronchioles start to close when too many semi-trucks come back to back at Rowan Park when I'm playing with my kids. I could tell you that There's sometimes this black stuff that washes on the beach at Calumet Park when my daughter is training to be a lifeguard. You know, those are things that I see and observe with my own five senses every single day. And that is the experience that I bring that Cheryl and her mother, Hazel Johnson, have shared those powerful stories about the suffering of so many families who have lost loved ones to cancer in Elk Elk Gardens, like in my neighborhood, all these rare forms of cancer. Everybody's like, doctors don't really know, you know, what the life expectancy would be. And this is like a rare, like how many times do we have to hear that to know that something is not right here? You know, the fact that I have to smell these smells and that I feel so sick when I should not be feeling sick like this, you know, just playing in the park with my kiddo is a huge problem. And like Hazel, I am going to raise the alarm. I'm going to sound that alarm. I'm going to raise these issues until justice is actually served here, until I see the people who have caused this much amount of pain and pollution 
are actually found accountable and we have justice, that we change these policies, that those people lose their jobs. That has to happen. So just as Cheryl says about the chemicals, they don't die, they multiply. The same can be said about Hazel's legacy. As she fought for folks to understand how these harmful impacts accumulate and compound upon each other, she also left a model for how to compound love. As we hear from Olga, Tanisha, and so many others, the legacy of Hazel Johnson is continuing on through the people working for justice, the people striving to make healthy environments for those they love. Help This Garden Grow is presented by Respair Production and Media with Elevate and People for Community Recovery. The show is hosted and created by us, Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger. Our co-executive producers are Sylvia Ewing, Ann Evans, and Cheryl Johnson. Our associate producer is Natalie Frazier. Our editor is Rocio Santos. And our consulting producers are Maurice and Judith from Juneteenth Productions. Special thanks to our creative cabinet, Adela Bass, Olga Batista, Tanisha Harris, Juliana Pino, and Kyra Woods. Our artwork is designed by Ariana Eggleston with additional multimedia support from Davon Clark. Help This Garden Grow was recorded in the Malika Lean studio at the Breathing Room Space, a movement building center stewarded by the Let Us Breathe Collective. You can find out more about the work of Respair Production and Media at respairmedia.com, get in tune with Elevate and elevatenp.org, and support the work of PCR at peopleforcommunityrecovery.org. Much love to the people. Peace.